Thanks, everybody. Uh, the next panel's on uh, central banking and um, volatility. I'm Craig Torres. I uh, cover the Federal Reserve for Bloomberg News. When I think of central banking and volatility, um, there's a couple kinds of volatility. Uh, there's sort of regime shift volatility, which is what we're seeing now. And um, central banks don't always move against this. This is kind of a price discovery thing. And uh, later they'll find out whether this is good or bad for the achievement of their mandate. And of course there's the risk off kind of volatility, which they do strongly move against. And then there's the strange thing we've been seeing in recent years where they're the creators of volatility um, as communication became a bigger part of what they do. And I would add as financial conditions became uh, used by them explicitly as an amplifier for policy at the zero boundary. So financial conditions tightened. When you're trying to keep policy extraordinarily accommodative, you back off your intent, even though you stated the intent to raise interest rates four times in 2016. So with that, um, I'll announce our first speaker. Uh, he's the chairman of the Cato Institute. Many of you know him as the former leader of BB&T, so take it away, John Allison. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. I, uh, as the old uh, president of Cato, I want to thank you for coming. And I know we have a number of supporters of the Cato Monetary Center in the audience, and I want to particularly thank them. They're obviously great people, and they've made uh, our work uh, possible. So thank you very much. As Jim mentioned, I got recruited uh, yesterday, so I haven't had exactly a long uh, prepared time, so I don't have any of the graphs that the economists often throw at you, but I wouldn't have them anyway because that's not how I think. I spent my career in business. I was the longest serving CEO of a major financial institution in the U.S., uh, BB&T, and I think from a business perspective, BB&T was a community Main Street bank, and interestingly enough, my uh, experience now, I'm teaching in the academy, I'm teaching at Wake Forest, and being here in D.C. and working with government bureaucrats and having a lot of friends on Wall Street is a very different kind of thinking that takes place on Main Street. Certainly there's some commonalities, but it's a different worldview. Um, so my goal is to try to explain what I think the impact of, of the Federal Reserve's monetary and regulatory policies in particular have been on Main Street and therefore fundamental economic activity. Um, I'm going to kind of separate them into monetary and regulatory. Sometimes they work together. Often they're actually going in opposite directions. Um, I want to begin with some context, looking at the last uh, economic cycle. You know, unfortunately, uh, the commonly held belief is that deregulation and greed on Wall Street caused the uh, financial crisis, which is simply factually not true, and I suspect most people in this room don't believe that. Uh, I believe very strongly that the cause of the financial crisis was a combination of government housing policy, including the CRA and the intense pressure on banks to do affordable housing, now subprime lending, and of course Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, the giant government-sponsored enterprises that when they failed had $5 trillion in liabilities and $2 trillion of subprime mortgages. In addition to that, you can call that a regulatory policy or government policy was how that was inflated and made much worse, in my opinion, by the Federal Reserve. 
And I happened to be able to go through this. As I said, I was the longest serving CEO, so I kind of saw this uh, up front. Um, and it really began in, in the early 2000s. We were having a correction, a much needed correction, around the dot-com bubble. And Alan Greenspan, of course, was head of the Federal Reserve, and he was a maestro. Everybody thought he was wonderful. And he didn't want to have any bad times, right? So he effectively created a radical reduction in real interest rates. So we got real in negative real interest rates. That was very destructive because we already had a housing bubble going on. House prices at that time were probably 10 to 15 percent, let's just say 10 percent too high. And the way we determined bubbles was looking at the debt service on home mortgages versus people's income. And it was too high. We were actually expecting a housing correction and gearing up for that. The opposite happened when, when Greenspan crashed rates. He, it's like pouring gasoline on a fire, and we ended up with a 30, 35 percent uh, over uh, investment and pricing of, of, of housing. Um, what uh, um, followed was very interesting. You, some of you my age group may remember that Greenspan kept saying that there was this global savings glut and interest rates were going to stay low forever. Well, we didn't pay too much attention to him, except it went on for several years, and then at that point, you kind of had to pay attention to him because you had no spread in your business, so many banks lengthen the duration of their bond portfolio, higher yields on doing that. And then uh, we were one of the last of that party, and about 30 days after we did that, Greenspan started raising rates, and he raised rates very rapidly. It was the fastest percentage increase ever. Now, the level didn't go that high, and economists often look at the level, but if you're running a business, the cost of, of, of money is your cost of goods. And if your cost of goods goes doubles, triples, <laughs> in a very short period of time, it's hard to run that business. And I use an analogy with students. I say, you know, you, you, you go to college, and your first semester, your tuition is $25,000. The next semester, it's $50,000. The next is $75,000. The next is $100,000. Kind of hard to handle that kind of price increase. That was what was happening to the cost of goods. Uh, for banks. Bernanke continues that trend when he takes over, and then he does something incredibly destructive that I argue markets never do. He inverted the yield curve. Short-term rates were higher than long-term rates. Banks make money by borrowing short and lending long. Cre that inverted yield curve created a huge incentive for banks to take risk because they had negative spreads, and the only thing you could do was take more risk. And you look at many of the bad assets, disproportionate amount, were in the last couple of years of the cycle. So there was a massive incentive for the banking industry to take risk or go broke with negative spreads. And of course, it's almost a one-to-one -one correlation with negative interest rates and recessions, but the Fed said there wasn't going to be a recession. In fact, Bernanke was predicting there wouldn't be a recession after the recession had already started. Um, <laughs> Um, the impact of this activity was not just on the housing market. And I think that's important to understand. There were multiple bubbles, automobile industry. There were bubbles in commodities. And so there was a lot of misinvestment going on around this cycle that was being unwound really rapidly. Um, what the impact of that I think is that a lot of Main Street business people felt fooled by the Federal Reserve monetary policy. 
a lot of bankers felt fooled by the Federal Reserve Monitor. They said one thing, did something totally different, made totally different projections on what the reality was. Do these guys know what they're doing? Um, what's happening today, it may be in the process of changing. The average Main Street business person, not an expert on monetary policy, however, expects inflation. They can't figure out why it didn't happen. They read in the Wall Street Journal about the QEs and, and all this massive expansion in the money supply, or at least the perception of that, and they think inflation ought to be happening. Now, George Selgin will probably say maybe that's a misinterpretation, but that's what the average Joe thinks is going on. But at the same time, when actually running their business, they're getting no revenue increases. So here you are stuck with no revenue growth, and you expect inflation to take off. And inflation is tough if you're running a Main Street business because it's never even. Your prices might go up faster than, the, than your costs, or your costs might go up a lot faster than your prices. And they know the Fed's created bubbles. All of, they're looking at people like Caterpillar. They got sucked into the commodity bubble in uh, the developing world, which only could happen because of what happened with the Federal Reserve since it's the world's reserve currency. And they're saying, hey, I don't want to get caught in that mess. So what do you do? No revenue growth, expectations, uh, unknown expectations of what inflation is going to be and what it's going to do to you. You get cautious. You whack the heck out of cost. You don't invest in anything. You buy back your stock if you're in a public marketplace. And if you're a big public company, you can get long-term financing really cheap, huge a motivation for you to leverage, uh, to buy back stock. Uh, then you do mergers that are cost-driven instead of revenue-driven mergers. The activity going on in the mainstream business community is totally explainable given their perception of the impact past, I've been fooled, I don't know whether these guys know what they're doing, and what's this going to do to me in the future. And it's a lot driven by monetary policy. Um, I, I use the... Uh, <clears throat> analogy, it's not fair to some way, I'm going to step on some Fed studies, of the Wizard of Oz. You know, when Greenspan was in there, it was kind of a perception that he was a Wizard of Oz, right, and wonderful things he does. And then the, the financial crisis is like it pulled the curtain back, and there's this old guy, and it's all smoking mirrors, and people saying, hey, those people in D.C., including those people at the Federal Reserve, they really know what they're doing. Um, <clears throat> let's... Uh, change the context and talk about the regulatory side. I argue that in terms of this correction, <clears throat> the regulatory side actually did more damage than the monetary side. Not, not defending the monetary side, the regulatory side did more da damage. <clears throat> First, one of the contexts is, you know, you hear this, uh, this argument that banks were deregulated. That is one of the most bizarre arguments I've ever heard. If you were running a bank, there was a massive increase in regulation under George Bush. You got the Privacy Act, Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, the Patriot Act, it was a huge increase in regulation. You can just go count the pages. Ra radical increase in <clears throat> regulation of the banking industry. Banks were forced to do subprime lending, i.e. affordable housing lending. Huge pressure to do. You couldn't do mergers unless you did a ton of subprime lending. <clears throat> there was uh, this bizarre allocation of capital ratios. You had to keep half as much capital for a subprime mortgage as you did a loan to Exxon. Pretty bizarre, right? And in Europe, of course, you can make a loan to Greece and keep no capital. Great incentive for crazy misinvestments. By the way, <clears throat> I find it, I'll put it in the bizarre category, that there's argument going on about Basel, whatever it is, three, four, five, uh, and, and they're, and they're, <laughs> they're going to set global capital risk-waste capital ratios. Now, is it a blatantly obvious self-fulfilling 
of fallacy. Because if you underweight the capital or say one asset is less risky, what's going to happen? A bunch of, uh, of, of investments are going to flow into that asset and it's going to get more risky. Exactly what happened in the mortgage business. So, so I mean, it's, it, it's never going to work. And by the way, they just failed again. Two years ago, energy credits were ranked low risk. Now they're ranked high risk after the energy bubble already burst, right? So that is a, it's a bar, uh, bizarre idea. Um, I want to talk about what I consider to be a big be, uh, deal, and I'm the only voice <laughs> I hear talking about this, and I think it's because I'm one of the few people that really understands this. I talk a little bit about it in my book, uh, but I wish I talked about it a lot more. I had the experience of going through the financial crisis the early 1980s and the early 1990s. In the early 1980s, I was running BB&T's lending business. In the early 1990s, I was CEO. The, two, the three crises, those two in the recent one, were handled radically different by the regulators, and it had a huge impact on the outcome. Clearly, those of you that are economists, if you look at the early 1980s, you would have expected much worse outcome than we had in 2007 and 2009, because we were in much worse condition going into those, those two crises. In the early 70s, I mean, in the early 80s and the early 90s, the way the bank examiners handled the crisis, they effectively <clears throat> attacked the bad banks. And the bad banks failed. Thousands over those two cycles failed. And that was a good thing. They put the bad banks out of business. But they discriminated and allowed the good banks to continue to operate. BB&T grew during those cycles. We picked up a lot of business. We helped our customers through those cycles. We helped the good customers. The bad banks have a lot of good customers through those cycles. This was an inverted regulatory action. This time, the regulators saved the big bad banks and attacked the healthy banks effectively. They saved the big bad banks. They didn't let them fail, and they should have failed. <coughs> um, this argument of a contagion, it's a little bit of a side, is a bizarre argument. I was operating in the back room of BB&T. We were buried with cash. We weren't anywhere near going down. Same thing true for Wells Fargo and most of the banking industry. But anyway, they chose to save the banks, and then they turned around and attacked the healthy banks. They radically tightened lending standards for healthy banks. Um, and, and I think, you know, we can uh, think about that, but what it, that is really, I would call it, totally irrational. The horse was out of the barn and they closed the barn door so the horse couldn't get back in. And by, I mean, it's kind of like, uh, this is not a great strategy, but it was their strategy. One of the big culprits, by the way, that a lot of conservatives treat as a, as a hero is Sheila Bear. No, Sheila Bear was very destructive. Conservatives are wrong about the idea that in bad times you need to really, really tighten. You need to tighten before you get there. <laughs> and the people that have done that, the good banks, shouldn't be forced to tighten at exactly the wrong time. It just makes things radically worse, radically worse. Um, I think what drove this, I had an interesting experience. I was uh, requested by one of my academic friends to uh, do a, a book review on Bernanke's book, uh, uh, <clears throat> his uh, Courage to Act. It's a book I definitely wouldn't have read. It was hard reading it. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I did read it. 
And, and what was bizarre in there was Renaki's perception of what was going on. He goes in a couple you know, pages and talks about we were on the verge of a global Armageddon. We were getting ready to have a collapse. The global financial system is going to be, make the Great Depression look like a picnic. I mean, yeah, and I thought that was bizarre. I mean, it had nothing to do with what was actually happening in the mainstream banking uh, business. Absolutely nothing uh, to do with the reality of that. And his perception of contagion, as I just described, was not true. BB&T wasn't going broke because Goldman Sachs was going broke. It would have been a good day when Goldman Sachs went broke, my personal opinion. But anyway, uh, the, uh, but that irrational fear spread this regulatory overreaction. And then they'd, they'd basically gotten rid of all the old examiners because the examiners were the problem, not Bernanke's monetary policy. And then the young people came in and overreacted. Um, the one thing I would say is that BB&T was literally forced to put thousands of people, uh, banks out of business, I mean our customers out of business that we shouldn't have been forced to put out of business. It was very distracting. People we would have kept in business and today we're creating jobs. I am a little more optimistic today, although there's been a tremendous amount of damage since the, the passage of Dodd-Frank. Radical raising capital standards, which is in one way okay, but accompanied by a radical increase in regulation and the yield curve spread so banks can't, can't make money. Biggest problem has been a radical increase in liquidity requirements so that banks have to hold short-term government bonds, and that, that is the main reason that banks have excess bank reserves. Um, then there's been the radical ta uh, tightening of lending standards. That's continued. I started as a small business loan lender, the kind of small business venture capital loans that I made uh, that uh, created hundreds of thousands of jobs, fortunately, over the years. You literally can't do that anymore. I talked to Bernie Marcus, a friend of mine who started Home Depot. He could not get the kind of financing he had today. The lending standards for small businesses are tighter than they were ever in the last 45 years. One positive sign, I'm not a big fan of, of Donald, uh, Donald Trump, but I think there's a, a reasonable uh, reaction in the market, and bank stocks have been going up, to Trump being elected. Uh, we think there will be regular, he has agreed to support a bill that Cato has played a role in. It's not the bill we would have had, but in the bill, if, if banks keep a strong leverage capital ratio, uh, then they basically can opt out of Dodd-Frank, and that would be a huge liberating factor for the industry. Interestingly enough, if the, even if the bill doesn't get passed, I think we'll get some, some regulatory relief, because regulators always act in the regulatory interest, and they always look to the political leadership to judge that, and I'll close with one concrete story. Uh, early in my career when I was CEO, uh, Bill Clinton got to be elected president, and Bill uh, we had a lot of support from the African-American community, and he was convinced there was racial discrimination in banking. Well, this was in the 90s. There had been racial discrimination in the 60s. There wasn't any racial discrimination anymore. But he gave an order to his FDIT staff that we need to prove there's racial discrimination. Now, racial discrimination had already been against the law, and they knew there wasn't any, but they had, they had to make the boss happy. So they went around and made an interesting deal. They would go into banks, use crazy formulas, and accuse you of racial discrimination. But then the penalty was you pay a small fine, you agree to do stuff you were already doing, and they get to write a letter in the newspaper and say you've racially discriminated. They came to BB&T. We knew we didn't racially discriminate. We said, hell no. We went and looked at this crazy stuff, and we said, we'll fight you in court. 
They said, well, uh, we'll just do something different. What we're going to do is you can't make any mergers, you can't open any branches, we will send in an army, and we'll, and we'll just sit on your organization, we, you'll be paralyzed. And we were paralyzed for about four months, and we fought them like crazy, probably a bad strategy. Uh, but then, interestingly enough, the Republicans were elected to Congress, right, two years after Clinton was in. They were elected on Tuesday. On Thursday, every one of the examiners went home, and we never heard from them again. <laughs> true story. This is a factual true story. So Donald Trump has reduced regulation of the banking industry, whether he, he, he passes any bills or not, uh, for better or worse. And I hope our legislation will come, because you can't have a viable economic system, and you can't have healthy growth without a healthy banking system, particularly that Main Street banking system, which has been under tremendous unnecessary stress. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Uh, many of you know that BB&T is really big on branch banking. It's not, it's not just a big bank. It's, it's a, really is a Main Street bank. So now we're going to hear from Mark, Spitz, Mark Spitznagel. He's president and chief investment officer of the hedge fund Universa Investments. Thank you very much. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, thank you, Jim, for uh, inviting me uh, to this. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of Cato and, and, and the work that they do. I don't, I don't often get a chance to sort of crawl out from under, uh, under my trading desk to do these types of things. Do I have? Okay, wow. Um, I guess advancing this is going to be kind of uh, intuitive for me. There we go. So, um, you know, uh, central banking and, and market volatility, and it's a little bit of a misnomer. I think what we care about, of course, is, is risk. We don't... Um, upside volatility is not something that should concern us, typically would concern us as much as investors as, as risk, so it's downside uh, uh, volatility. So I, you know, I hope to convey a little bit about um, how I think about extreme risks uh, in the marketplace, uh, particularly from an Austrian perspective. Some of this is, is something that I've covered uh, a little bit in my book. Um, so I'm going to think about central banking monetary policy sort of through the prism uh, of trading. Um, specifically managing, uh, the management and the hedging of extreme risks, which is sort of my bread and butter. So we think of these extreme risks, these extreme downside risks um, as, as black swans. This is a term that's become um, sort of popular uh, over the years. Um, of course, it's, it's, it's what it really is. It's the problem of induction of Hume. Uh, history is a poor source uh, for measuring uh, future risks. But again, I'm gonna, my point is going to be that even this term, black swans, is a bit of a misnomer, uh, I, I think, in, in the world we live in. Um, what's important to me is these extreme risks are pr still priced as black swans, but I, 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 my point is that they're, 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 they're not black swans. Um, so how might we recognize and navigate the effects of, uh, of monetary interventions in a robust way? This is something that I'm always thinking about uh, as an investor. And more, more to the point, really, where do crashes come from? It's amazing to me that there's really no consensus, um, even today, on this link between monetary policy and, and financial crashes. Uh, it would seem to me that just evidence of the last decade, it should be there. But it's amazing that it's not. In this room, there may be. But outside of places like this, uh, um, where you don't have statues of Mises in the hallway, it's, you're not, you're, you're not going to get this kind of consensus. So, but the good news today, I think, is that there is a transparency right now. Um, you know, Mises taught us there, is no there are no controlled experiments uh, in economics. Um, but we're pretty, I think we're pretty close to it today. We're, at, we're probably as close to a controlled experiment right now as will come, an experiment on the, on, on the effects of monetary interve extreme monetary interventionism. Of course, 
Trump is perhaps adding um, some degrees of freedom here, and, and that will be a danger, I think, uh, a danger for him. He may sort of uh, inherit uh, 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 these risks, um, whereas they actually don't, will belong less to him. Um, so if I could advance this, uh, I don't actually see how that's going to happen here. How do I, uh, there we go. What's the, what's the action here to advance this slide? Right here. There we go. Excellent. Um, so, you know, for the Misesian idea is that economics and from my standpoint, really investing as well, it's, it's, it should be an a priori sort of deductive science. He, he sort of coined this term praxeology, which is sort of the, the study of human action. And this, what we're trying to do is we're trying to build these sort of deductive building blocks from which we can get insight into a non-inductive insight uh, into Thing, uh, uh, economics and certainly investing. Um, so what these are are these sort of Gedanken experiments, um, largely on a micro scale. A really a good example of this, um, uh, of Mises, is this idea of the evenly rotating economy, the ERE. You know, it's, very, it's very similar to the equilibrium of mainstream economics. Um, uh, firm by firm, individual by individual, there are no profits. There are no spreads uh, between return, the return on invested capital and the, the cost of capital. So this is sort of this world where nothing ever changes. Um, it's a very uninteresting world. Nothing to, there are certainly, uh, there are no entrepreneurs. There are no hedge funds. That may be a good thing. But there, there's just this, this very uh, uh, simplistic world where nothing ever happens. It's sort of a dark ages. So, we, and so what Mises does is he loosens this a little bit and he gives us that, this concept of the stationary economy, which feels a little more like something maybe we experience. And that would be that in the aggregate, there are no true pure profits. There are no uh, positive spreads on return on capital to uh, cost of capital. Uh, uh, and, the, and, and the aggregate there aren't, but individually we do have entrepreneurs. We do have, uh, you know, people deploying capital. They're uh, 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 able to provide and uh, 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 sort of forecast things, things that consumers will want and offer it to them in an efficient way. So this is probably something that we would more expect out of capitalism. This is what capitalism should do. Is we should have winners and losers and should, there should be this spread. And it should be hard to make um, entrepreneurial profits. You shouldn't just, you shouldn't be able to close your eyes and make an entrepreneurial profit. It's something special to make this pure spread of return on, excess return on capital, return on capital above your cost of capital. So this is what the stationary economy is. And he, he said that we would move in and out of that. Um, there could be shocks to, uh, um, that could cause us to move in and out of that, changes in time, societal time preference. Certainly innovations would move the, uh, the, uh, the society in and out of this stationarity. Um, but, we, but there would be these forces that would bring it back. And this is something that we understand very well about, about competitive capitalism. And so we can think of these as sort of homeostatic forces. Um, Norbert Wiener uh, coined this term cybernetics, which is sort of control and communication in an organism or a machine. And it's, so, and, and there's this, what it is is there are these servo mechanisms that sort of regulate systems. They detect errors. They correct errors. This is, of course, what entrepreneurs, capitalists are, are really doing. There's a negative feedback process in capitalism that creates a balance. Um, and as I said, in, in entrepreneurial forces are part of this. Interest rates are a huge part of this. Um, acting as these homeostatic regulators. And it's something that we just sort of appreciate less and less today, I think, for, for very clear reasons. So what can we do with this, uh, this idea of stationary, stationarity and homeostasis? Um, wow, that's hard to say. That's not going to be really clear. So that's, 
I'm just going to have to talk you through that because you can't really tell what's going on there. But so uh, in 69, uh, James Tobin gave us this uh, concept. He commented on this concept. Uh, we, we call it the, the Tobin's Q ratio, which is, you know, think of it as an aggregate, pri aggregate price to book ratio. It's the total corporate equity in the numerator divided by the totally sort of replacement value of that. Um, and I, I like to call it, uh, in my book, I call it the Misesian stationary index. I think what's important about that if you use the concepts of Mises, it does kind of show you where we are in terms of departure from stationarity. Um, when this, when, when you have, you can see, well, I'll talk, you, you can see the things that would change the MS index, or the Tobin's Q index, are, of course, changes in the valuations numerator, the valuations of, of the stock market, or in the denominator, we can see it could be, it could be a change in the valuation of the total aggregate capital, corporate capital, um, or it could be net investment. That would be investment, uh, you know, above the debt. Um, um, just as a technical matter. So this is kind of the, sort of the enterprise value divided by invested capital, and you subtract the debt from both sides. So it's kind of the sort of net of debt. Um, so if, if these two things are sort of the same, you have an MS, and I standardize this for, so for one, and I, I, can't, I don't have time to get into the technicalities of that. But it basically, if you have an MS index or a Tobin's Q, the way I, 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 I standardize it, of one, we basically have the whole equal to the sum of its parts. We could break up, we could, we could replace all this capital out in the market, you know, in theory, and we, would and we would get the value, the, the, the valuation of that would be the same as it is today. This is an MS index or Tobin's Q um, of one. And of course, you can, you can think about the competitive forces that are always driving it back to one. Um, when the Tobin's Q or the MS index is very, very low, um, this is an instance where there's, there's too much capital. There's, there would be some liquidation of the capital, and there would be some um, accumulation of, of, uh, of, of, of title to existing capital. And when it's very high, you would expect there to certainly be a lot of investment. Um, so, there is, so, so what I see here is a very robust indicator of this depart, departure from stationarity. Um, uh, and you can see what we're able to do here in this last part of, uh, part of this formula. MS index is really the aggregate return on invested capital, the spread of the aggregate return on invested capital over the growth rate divided by the average, the spread of the, of the um, uh, weighted average cost of capital over the growth rate. So really what we have here is a very robust measure of the spread of return on capital to cost of capital. When this number is very high, we do know that the market is implying a very high return on capital rel aggregate relative to the cost of capital. When it's very low, it's the opposite. So we, we are, what we're able to do here that you can't do with things like PEs, which have other degrees of freedom, we're able to isolate something right here. There, there's a bit of a, control, of, of a controlled variable. Um, so there, we should expect, as I said, that these homeostatic servo mechanisms, mechanisms, both the numerator and the denominator, these sort of mutual adjustments that Hayek called, creating this negative feedback uh, in, 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 the, in the system. Um, and as I said, these things can move around a little bit. This is how civilization progresses. We have movements down in time preference, civilization progresses. We have innovations and civilization progresses. But the key is the competitive forces that bring this thing back. It's the only way it works. Um, so if I could advance this. So here we have sort of a history of sort of an adjusted Tobin's Q MS index. I mean, you're going to notice that this is a very, there's an exceedingly wide range here. It's beyond what we would, what we would expect, uh, what we should expect in a very competitive world, a very competitive economy. Um, why are capitalism servos or this competitive feedback system, why are they, are they failing us? Um, it's, it, my argument is that this, this homeostatic system that is the capitalistic system has been overridden. In the face of it, it looks like capitalism has just failed in this, in this homeostatic uh, process. Uh, so we end up with 
you know, what we end up with is, is a situation where millennials all vote, are voting for socialists because we look at something like this and we say that capitalism really doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And I think that this, this is a problem. Um, so if you delve down into this a little bit, you can look at, um, you know, to, to, Tobin himself, who was a bit of a Keynesian, actually was much of a Keynesian, he, 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 he looked at this as a very much a monetary policy tool because it was clear to him that central banks could uh, uh, cause the, Tobin, the, the MS index, Tobin's Q ratio, to move around. And he expected that when they goosed the, the, the Tobin's Q, that he would see more uh, uh, investment. Um, that did, so when the numerator got sw uh, swelled, you would see the response by capitalists would be to invest. Of course, this has been the argument in, in many ways, indirectly, uh, all along. So, but, but what we see here is that actually there is no, there, you can see a little negative relationship, but really statistically, there is no relationship between the level of the MS index and annual net investment. You remember that this, this net investment was a component um, um, of the denominator. But you would, and you would see something very similar just in changes in the denominator con, uh, uh, coincidental with, uh, um, with uh, uh, the relative mag the magnitude of the numerator. So it's a strange thing that uh, Tobin's, movements in Tobin's Q and the MS index does nothing to investment. This is a very strange thing. And the other thing you got to think about is, you know, we hear a lot about bubbles, about animal spirits, irrational exuberance. What actually happens when the market gets high, like it has in past periods, is you actually have a highly segmented irrationality, a high, highly segmented bubble. Um, the irrationality um, is only in the whole. It's only in the numerator, but it's not in the sum of the parts in the denominator, which is a very strange thing. If, you're, if we're going to call a market a bubble, you have to say, well, why is there a bubble in uh, say the price of trucking companies, but not in the price of trucks. There's something very strange about that, and I would argue that uh, why is there a bubble in, in the title of capital, as Mises Rothbard called it, but not in the components that goes into that. Um, and even when you have inflationary inflationary booms, the same thing held. The same thing held in the 70s. The, numer the denominator did not catch up to the numerator. You did not see this. This um, even though you had a marking up of some capital goods, you did not have this um, this this boost in investing. So. It, 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 there's a, something that's very strange about that. I, uh, clearly what it is, it's what's happening with interest rates. Interest rates, artificial interest rates versus natural interest rates are completely different beasts, certainly. Um, so uh, the way we have to think about this is in a, certainly in a natural interest rate environment, when interest rates are very low, this is a low time preference society. It's a society that is exceedingly patient. Um, and capitalists pick up on that. They extend their periods of production. Uh, when it's artificially low, what's happening here Clearly, we, don't, we know it's not right, and capitalists are actually not patient. We end up with these crazy financial engineers as opposed to occasional uh, roundabout capitalists. Um, so I'm just going to have to move forward a little bit more quickly. So you know, history, um, you know, we, this departure from this, these a priori expectations that we should have had based on a competitive capitalist economy. Um, what's happened? Why, why has this happened? Uh, I'm not going to, I don't have time to go through all these things. There's been a lot of monetary interventionism, one way or another. It hasn't all been the Fed, but there's been a lot of monetary interventionism. And one of my books is, Gold, one of my favorite books is Goldfinger. And in the very opening of this, there's this line that says, Mr. Bond, they have a saying in Chicago, once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, the third time it's enemy action. So I think that's the way we need to think about this. You know, it's, um, uh, and it's, by the way, this is as close as we can also come to this sort of out-of-sample test. These ideas, these you know, uh, the Austrian concepts came very early in this time series. So um, um, these are sort of like, again, I see this as just sort of like tracks through the snow that we can sort of better understand uh, um, how things are happening. So let's back to this prism of trading. 
Um, this homeostatic process has been overridden. I'm going to have to go through this rather quickly, but how, how, what, does this, what does this imply as, as an investor? Um, it, it's, it's, so we, these are subsequent uh, mean uh, returns on the S&P, uh, one-year returns on the S&P subsequent to uh, MS ratios or Q, Q, MS indices or Q ratios in different quartiles. We were very much in the higher, highest quartile today, and we've been for a little while. Um, investment returns are very, very low. You should expect investment returns to be very, very low when we're high like this. And as I, I try to make my case, this is a fairly robust measure. Uh, there's, this is not a curve-fitting uh, exercise. Uh, the point, it's important to note though, that this is almost irrelevant. It's impossible to arb this, both as a professional uh, uh, and investing uh, personal investor. Uh, you, it's impossible to avoid the malinvestment that comes from investing in a market uh, today. Uh, you know, more, what's relevant to me in trying to insure against crashes um, are, is what the tail looks like. Um, uh, uh, you know, it's, 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 this too is also very difficult to argue, but you can see the higher the Q ratio, the higher the MS index, the more we should expect, um, again, both deductively, but also now inductively, ex very, very exceedingly large uh, drawdowns. Again, very difficult to, to argue. It's like paying, playing very tight in a very loose game of poker. Uh, it's, it takes a lot of patience. So, you know, it's, what's on everyone's minds today, to me, uh, is, is, what, is probably not terribly significant. Whether it's the degree of, of fiscal Trump stimulus that maybe we have ahead of us in the face of already unprecedented leverage, or incremental changes in rates, or central bank balance sheets, crashes are the in inevitable homeostatic correction of monetary distortion. A distortion which is, fortunately today, is as transparent as ever, but it is as high as, of, as ever. Um, so again, we are tantalizingly close, I think, to a uh, 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 a, a truly uh, a controlled experiment. So, uh, you know, I'm already convinced, however, you know, that based simply on what I've presented briefly here, uh, when we speak of market crashes as black swans, we have perhaps our ornithology wrong. You know, as a nod to great Austrian economic tradition, you know, let's henceforth, I would argue, uh, change our moniker for market crashes from black swans to, to, to eagles. Thank you very much. Jim Grant, uh, he's the founder well and done. editor of uh, <laughs> Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Jim's also a financial historian. And I would say it's not a stretch to call him uh, the dean of my generation of financial writers. Um, what generation might that be? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Getting older every day. Uh, yeah. Remember the uh, heavyweight uh, champion, Jersey Joe Walcott, who uh, contested for a a title at a superannuated age and the sports writers were getting on and he said, I'm not old, I'm ugly. Which I feel are words to live by. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you're here and uh, thank you, Cato. Now, you remember uh, Jonathan Gruber, do you not? He's, uh, he was the brainiac from MIT who, uh, having helped design Obamacare, um, neglected to realize that uh, in the vicinity of a digital device, uh, nothing is off the record. And he was recorded as saying that uh, uh, this uh, um, landmark legislation passed on account of the stupidity of the American electorate. That was Jonathan Gruber. <laughs> so I, I think of Professor Gruber in the context of the proliferating plans to reinvent our monetary and uh, banking institutions. 
Uh, we critics have been champing at the bit low these many years, decades, uh, fine, uh, hundreds of years, uh, for just the opportunity that Donald Trump uh, was good enough to hand us on November 8th. So uh, what now? Uh, surely this is the moment for new thinking. What may we contribute? Uh, we do have our ideas, you know, audit the Fed, uh, collapse its balance sheet, uh, abolish Humphrey Hawkins, repeal Dodd-Frank, normalize interest rates, let the stock market find its own level, stop taxing gold as a collectible, strike the Federal Reserve governors dumb. Um, so many opportunities, uh, so much need, where to begin? May I suggest uh, the responsibility uh, or the uh, the preliminary consultation with the president-elect before an extended listening tour among the American people. Only think of the trouble that Professor Gruber might have saved himself and the rest of us if he'd only asked the customers what they wanted. Uh, me, I happen to be partial to fixed exchange rates, a convertible dollar, the responsibility of the shareholders for the solvency of the banks in which they hold a fractional interest. I believe that money should be an objective measure of value, not a magic wand, and that the price mechanism, not the FOMC, should determine the level of asset values. And I support free-range market interest rates, not the cage-grown federal variety. <laughs> in short, I favor many of the forms and institutions uh, prevalent uh, one century ago. Now, not unlike uh, Professor Gruber, I have uh, made a detailed study of the situation. I believe I can defend the seeming paradox of seeking progress in the restoration of what was excellent, if not to borrow from Alexander Hamilton, uh, if what was not perfect. Uh, but I can't help but notice that most Americans are not on board with my program. Uh, neither do I see much enthusiasm for the Taylor Rule or for the Milton Friedman Monetary Autopilot Plan. This is in which the FOMC um, is replaced by your smartphone in the, uh, in the not always edifying presidential debates. The Federal Reserve was almost a non-topic. The public debt, too, was uh, notable uh, by its absence. Uh, amazingly, given that the Fed's ultra-low rates have facilitated um, what has been the doubling of the public debt in short, eight short years. I wonder what has come over us. In times past, money and banking were fighting words. Uh, to its critics in the early 19th century, the Bank of England literally had blood on its hands. This was at a time when uh, uh, to utter a fake note was a capital crime, and the bank had a strong word in whether clemency should be extended or withheld from the convicted. Uh, to Andrew Jackson, the Second Bank of the United States was a monster. He vowed to kill it, and he did. People on both sides of the Atlantic debated recondite monetary points until they were blue in the face. In England, it was the banking school versus the currency school. You'll be required to write 50 words on this later. And um, in this country, of course, it was uh, the gold bugs and the silver rights and the paper rights. And, you know, Coins Financial School, which was an uh, inflation propounding pamphlet in 1894 sold one million copies. People couldn't stop talking about this stuff. Uh, the Money Trust was the horse that Woodrow Wilson rose to the, rode to the White House in 1912. Uh, the Money Trust and its evils. And wouldn't you know that the, um, that the remedy for these evils turned out to be none other than the Fed. And the Fed came in, of course, for plenty of abuse uh, during its career, all too lengthy. Uh, uh, and yet, um, 
it has been surrounded by a virtual wall of political silence of late. Now, it will be said that central banks of the world are coming under new scrutiny, and that is true. Uh, but not even the crisis of the pension funds or 0% savings rates or the distortions evident in Tobin's queue or the recrimination over the errors that contributed to the coming of the Great Recession through excesses, regulatory and operational, none of these can get the Fed much political airtime. The fact is that America's central bank has paid no institutional price for its manifold failures. On the contrary, um, it has gotten bigger and bigger. Well, I guess unless, unless uh, leading the new financial stability oversight operation, the TSA of Wall Street, can be considered a form of political retribution. Uh, which brings us back to the people, I feel, as Professor Gruber must have felt, that uh, uh, the people have uh, so much to learn. In my case, I wish they would attend a little more closely to the distortions wrought by ZERP and NERP and QUERP and QE and, and to the technical difficulties presented by the interest on which the Fed pays excess reserves. I, I am disappointed that my fellow citizens do not see the world as I do what is lost by the substitution of the PhD standard for the gold standard and the solicit and socialization of credit risk for the double liability of bank shareholders. As you know, um, until the 1930s or thereabouts, uh, when a bank failed, it was the stockholders who got a capital call, not the taxpayers. I wish that the voters would see as clearly as some of us do that the, the flaws in the dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model uh, by which the monetary mandarins presume to manage what, after all, cannot be managed, that they would see these flaws are terminal. Uh, then again, what do you expect from an undisruptible government monopoly which is protected from operational competition by the law and from intellectual competition by the tenure system on the economics faculty of our universities. Mr. Trump did not win the election by ignoring the electorate. So what do the people think about money and the Bank of Yellen? Well, I wouldn't bother polling. Um, uh, you know about polls. <laughs> Better consult the daily soundings conducted by Mr. Market. Yeah, so let's survey quickly uh, what these market-based polls say, and, it, and uh, I, it pains me to relate to you that the results do not heavily support the monetary regime I favor. Rather, they seem to fall heavily on the side of the status quo. As recently as a few months ago, some $15 trillion of sovereign debt was priced to deliver a negative nominal yield, 15, uh, $13 trillion. Um, which is to say that the owners of wealth equivalent in size to not much less than America's GDP absolutely and unconditionally believe in at least uh, the short-term efficacy of these uh, monetary methods. Here are, say, the owners of these trillions to governments and their central bankers. Take my fiat currency, return it to me later. That is, returning a little less than the sum I am now handing you. You know, a bond is a promise to pay money. What few, if any, seem to ask is what exactly is money? So Gruber fashion, I itch to refashion the world, recalling the unhappy end of the Gruber-inspired experiment in top-down medical reform. I, I do hesitate. Um, to be clear, I am not in the least uncertain in the diagnosis I have offered of what's wrong with 21st century central banking, where I waver is how to set things right. 
So we market-minded reformers don't or shouldn't promise anyone a rose garden. There is no such thing as a monetary utopia. Uh, imagine this. Imagine a system in which the currency was uh, convertible on demand into a fixed weight of something or other, call it gold. Imagine in the same system that uh, uh, banks were organized as general partners, partnerships such that, in the event of a failure, uh, the owners of the institution were on the hook for their entire net worth uh, down to the last shilling and down to the last acre. Well, that was the system in place for the better part of 100 years in which panics recurred at 10-year intervals. Now, uh, it was a system that gave us the full fruit of the Industrial Revolution, yet it was by no means utopian. Um, however, however, there are uh, better and worse imperfect systems. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've done a little bit of reading and some writing, and I've, I've come to see perhaps something that Lord Overstone, the, one of the disputants in the 19th century British monetary debates, something that Overstone said in approximately these words, he was, he was perplexed and, and, and frustrated and a little let down by the fact that, uh, that Overend Gurney had failed taking down so much with it and that there had been panic in 1857, one in 1847, this after the passage of something called Peel's Act, which had seemed, at least to Overstone, to establish the gold standard um, as an unshakable and permanent regime of stability in money. What Overstone concluded after years of observation and Include a little sadly was that, in effect, uh, the trouble with money is credit, and the trouble with credit is people. Um, so in a dynamic economy, uh, there is a constant need for adjustment. Uh, something's got to give in response to changes in supply and demand, innovation. Uh, the choice that we, the people, must make is, is what is that something going to be? What is going to give? What's going to adjust? Uh, interest rates and exchange rates um, on the one hand, or stock prices, wages, house prices, you know, the painful things on the other. We have chosen, at least we have not protested overly against a system in which the things that adjust most obviously and, and dramatically are interest rates and exchange rates. You know, uh, cosseted college students aren't the only patrons of today's safe spaces. We tough guys on Wall Street occupy our own Fed-furnished, special, comfy shelters with coloring books and puppies. Um, the Fed wants to spare us. Um, we who deservedly need to be spared these things. It wants to spare us the volatility that comes with free markets. And uh, we'll defer to a very accomplished practitioner to my left, Mark, to tell me how many people he knows on Wall Street have protested against the absence of a, of a truly Old Testament quality bear market uh, recent years. <laughs> so editorializing about the failure of Obamacare the other day, the Wall Street Journal observed that Americans bitterly resent government interference in a matter so personal and essential as health care. This was by way of, of uh, reproving anyone who would leap to a proposal to abolish without replacing. Uh, but money, too, is personal and oh so essential and say we critics, uh, the government is making a hash of it. That is, we professional critics, you in this room and about six other people over at, uh, at the Heritage Foundation. Um, um, 
say, have you ever thought about the, uh, the Swiss National Bank as perhaps the essential clarifying, distorting element in our finances, the, uh, the one that uh, is creating the next eagle with the applause of all concerned, almost all concerned, the Swiss National Bank creates the francs which, with which to tamp down the value of the national currency that uh, buys euros with the francs, and with the francs it buys dollars, and with the dollars it buys common stocks. It owns more than $60 billion worth of American equities. It files a 13D just like uh, George Soros does. The money comes from nowhere. Uh, it serves to bid up equities to inflate marks, um, uh, Q ratio, and um, people are pretty swell with it. So as I say, uh, Obamacare, uh, it, is a, uh, it is a cautionary tale. It went on the rocks not because it violated the spirit of American individualism. It, it failed to test. It failed the test of the political marketplace because it didn't work. Now, I expect that one of these days, the shortcomings, the non sequiturs, the distortions, the derangements of our system of governmentally imposed interest rates and governmentally administered asset prices, that this, this concoction, this conflation of error is going to break down. And come that unhappy day, the scales will fall from the eyes of the people who, after all, are not stupid, Professor Gruber, but they have been humbugged. And to be fair, they have not been overly inquisitive. The plain demonstration of the failure of the PhD standard will open the door to reform, I think. But it may be an uphill road until that day of reckoning. So on that happy note, ladies and gentlemen, I thank you for listening. <laughs>
I'm just going to swing from um, right, my right, to the middle, to the left. So next, uh, right here in front. And I will go back later. Hi, Carl Golovin. I think, Mr. Grant, you might be the one to answer this. Um, there is circulating, well, there's gold and silver out there from the U.S. mints. It has denominations on it, $50, $1. But uh, if one converts them back and forth to Federal Reserve credit, the IRS wants to tax it as uh, a collectible sale, which is a much higher rate than a currency exchange. The question is, could it be as simple to go to a constitutional standard if either by a court decision or a legislation, the IRS were compelled to view it as simply a currency exchange? And then might not prices start to, to appear for things in dollars of gold or dollars of silver? And um, people might choose to hold some of their temporary wealth as gold and silver US minted rather than just Federal Reserve credit. Absolutely. I mean, I, th I think that the, uh, I understand that it would be a fairly easy thing to do to remove these taxes that now uh, disadvantage uh, legacy forms of money as opposed to the, the modern uh, fiat forms. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I th I, I, what I was trying to drive at in my talk was that I, th I think that, that, that people have not, that, that, the, that the profound issues of money that we are here to discuss have not come before the public. The public's not chosen to engage with them. Now, the reasons for those, uh, those the, the public might have its own reasons. The public might decide that as long as, if I, you know, so I'm a member of the public. I see a $20 bill on the sidewalk. I say, wow, I'm gonna get, that's, that's value. That is, that's money. The US dollar is the kind of the Coca-Cola of world monetary brands. It is the, it is, uh, it's a, one of the principal American exports. The uh, economy is showing 4.7% or something unemployment only. It's uh, the you know, stock markets at highs. What's so terrible? I think that is the backstory, perhaps, of the evident indifference of the people towards questions of money that some of us in this room think are so important and, uh, and need such, uh, and need very different answers from the answers that are being discussed. And I think, so one important, marginal, easily achievable step, I think, is exactly what you propose, which is to ch uh, change the, the tax status of, of gold, gold coins. And on my left, um, right over here. Martin Hutchinson, the Bears Lair columnist. I think all the panel has been puzzled by the absence of costs to the Fed's experiments of the last eight years. But if you look internationally, you'll discover that productivity growth is lousy or in some cases negative in all the countries that have got these funny money policies. Uh, it's lousy in Britain, it's lousy in the EU, it's zero here in the last four quarters, and it's been negative in Japan for the last seven years. So isn't that the cost of funny money, which is in fact a giant misallocation of investment, and isn't that what we should be telling the public, look, you're not getting any richer because of these funny money policies, and if they go on, you'll start getting poorer. I have, a re I have a reaction to that. In um, Bernanke's book, I was telling you I wrote a review for it, he argues that the Fed's done a great job. And I looked exactly at the statistics that you proposed, and product uh, productivity growth in the U.S. has been terrible since, since the, the correction. So th the idea that you can continue to improve your standard of living and have no growth in productivity is, is absurd. 
And, and so if you objectively use that standard, which I think is far better than GDP and unemployment rates, uh, then the Fed policy since the correction has failed. And globally, the same problem. Yeah, I mean, I would add that, you know, what, 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 where do we get uh, growth and productivity from? It's from investment in the tools of production, and better efficiencies in the tools of production. That's what capital is. Cap the whole point of capital is it makes, really, at the end of the day, labor more productive. Um, and so that's kind of my point. This is a great puzzle of central banking, a puzzle of monetary interventionism, but it, it really can't control that. Um, so I agree, yeah, this is something that people need to be more aware of. Right here well, you on know, my uh, right, man. Oh, I'm sorry. Cool. Uh, one might add also demographic factors. The U.S. population is growing at 0.8%, and 108 years ago when the Cubs previously won the World Series, it was 1.8%. <laughs> Hi, uh, Julie Smith from the Cause of Action Institute. Um, cash is the new barbarous relic in many senses. <laughs> There's been uh, said to be a war on cash. I wonder if any of you have a reaction to recent events in India where the war on cash just went nuclear <laughs> and the government uh, took 86% of its circulating cash out of circulation, demonetized it overnight. Yeah, I mean, I, this, uh, there's a, uh, where to begin? There's a, Ken Rogoff uh, wrote a book about this a while ago when uh, he proposed that, uh, uh, that $50, $50 bills, not $100 bills, be removed from circulation because they facilitate crime and, and uh, sin generally. And furthermore, they stifle the uh, ingenuity of central bankers who, in the absence of large bills, could and should drive nominal interest rates well below zero to save us uh, from anything resembling another recession or bear market ever. That's the, that was the thesis. Um, so halfway around the world, somebody apparently picked up a copy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, this is the Obamacare of money to the nth. It is... Uh, uh, an utterly gratuitous, self-inflicted disaster by a man who had, uh, uh, Mr. Modi, who had uh, uh, held himself up and was in turn held up by many investors as, uh, as a hopeful beacon of growth in the world's greatest democracy. But what an act of self-destruction. I mean, the scenes from India, the videotapes you can see and the reporting from India, just, just I mean, they have... They have, they have murdered the banking system, or they have murdered the real banking system, which is the cash system, which most of the Indians uh, patronize. And they have set back measured growth. I mean, it's, 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 it's horrible. I, I, maybe if, if any good comes up, it's a, it's a demonstration of, uh, of what really goes wrong with, with monetary meddling. Really, if you hoard cash, hoard 20s or smaller, right? <laughs> I'm gonna go back. Uh, to right in the middle. Hi, my name is Alex Billy, and I'm a PhD candidate at Georgetown. I have a question for Mr. Allison. I was hoping you could describe uh, what it was like to be at BB&T in 1995 during the Mexican crisis and the precedent that the committee who saved the world set for uh, the subsequent financial crisis. Um. Say, uh, in 19... 1995. 1995. 1995. Mexican the Mexican uh, crisis. Um, 
it really didn't have much impact on our business except that once again, we saw the large New York banks that were taking irrational risks bailed out again. So it really wasn't, in our view, wasn't bailing out Mexico. It was the same kind of thing that happened in the early 70s. They were always in the process of protecting the large New York banks. And, you know, we get to this issue of too big to fail. In my view, that's a, those banks are clearly not too big to fail. Uh, you don't liquidate them. Just, you know, you have bankruptcies like, uh, you know, General Motors actually went bankrupt in the financial crisis, and they happen all the time. But, if, but the idea now of uh, breaking up large banks because they're too big to fail, they wouldn't be here and wouldn't be too big to fail if they allowed to be uh, disciplined by the marketplace. Uh, in, in the traditional Main Street banks itself, it just really wasn't a factor, except frustration one more time that uh, Wall Street's getting bailed out. I do think that has something to do with the political thing. I mean, if you're a Main Street individual, you view that what happened in the financial crisis bailed out Wall Street and killed Main Street. And that's objectively what a lot of people on Wall Street that should have failed are very wealthy today, Right. And a lot of people in the, 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 the mom and pop guys doing home construction that were our customer base driving around pickups, they got wiped out. And there's a lot of bitterness about that. And I think it's, I think it's right. It's right. I mean, I understand that, that we wiped out a lot of small business unnecessarily and saved a lot of wealthy people on Wall Street. Okay. Uh, Bert, you have a question? Get a microphone, please. Uh, thank you. Bertie Lee, a banking consultant. Uh, this is a question for, for John. Um, news reports in recent weeks have uh, suggested that uh, uh, support in Europe for Basel III among the regulators is, is collapsing. It's almost as if uh, they're just going to totally walk away from it. Uh, my question is, uh, what do you see as the implications of that if there is this abandonment of Basel III, number one, on European banking and economy, and then what might be the spillover effects uh, here into uh, the U.S. banking system and the U.S. economy and U.S. banking regulation? I think it'd be great. Basel is an absurdity. It's these incredibly complex mathematical models that are self-defeating. Uh, and they're self-defeating for, as I described, once they risk weight any kind of asset, if they, uh, if they lo put low risk on it, there's much a bunch of capital resources going to flow to that asset and make it more risky. Uh, I am, a, as was said earlier, I'm a, if we're going to have, I like tangible equity. If not pure tangible equity, let's go to a leveraged capital ratio. And I think that would be far better uh, in terms of, of managing risk. And, and, there has to be a trade-off. Here's what's happening today. It's not exactly Basel, but it's the whole confluence. Banks can't afford to pay the regulatory costs under Dodd-Frank. It's huge and have good capital. The regulators are actually choosing more regulation because that's more jobs for them. And banks have improved their capital, but nowhere where they, sh they should be or where they were 20 years ago. You know, I remember everybody had a leverage capital ratio of 10% or more. BB&T had one of 15 at one point. And now, you know, we're trying to get back to six or seven. Uh, and, and so there, and Basel is a massive part of this regulated thing. You got an army of people running mathematical models under, under Basel that misleads people. So I think a far simpler, cleaner capital ratio with a trade-off of radical reducing regulatory costs would actually significantly bring down systems risk 
That doesn't mean individual banks wouldn't fail, but individual banks ought to be failing, just like in any other business. You just don't want the system to fail. Um, I'm going to go way back up top. David Merkel, uh, Olive Blog. Um, Risk-based capital rules have suited the life insurance industry very well. <laughs> Actuaries and state regulators got together about 20, 25 years ago, developed their formulas, thought through them really hard, and there have been very few failures since that time. Most of the failures have been due to lack of liquidity. And indeed with the banks, a lot of the failures recently have been because of wholesale funding markets, uh, the repo markets. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I would lay the, the blame at the door of risk-based capital standards. Um, how, why did the life insurance, aside from the fact that life insurers have much longer liability structures and have to match assets and liabilities, why did they get off so well relative to uh, the banks? That's for you. Um, well, I mean, that's an interesting question. The largest life insurer in the world uh, had serious problems, and a lot, large, a lot of property and casualty companies, which have the same rules, had serious problems uh, in the financial crisis. Um, so so it's, an, it's an interesting question. I think life insurance is a radically different kind of business. Interestingly enough, there's no federal regulation of life insurance. There's statewide uh, regulation, and life insurance are much better capitalized than banks are. So was it because they had risk-based capital? They just had more capital. Uh, than bank than banks had, and they're just you know they're not in the traditional lending business. The reason they like risk-based capital is that they they now buy government bonds instead of doing real uh, assets. And whether that's good for the economy or not, I don't know. When I started in the banking business, life insurance were the prime were the second to savings and loans were the provi primary provider of home mortgages, and they required a 20% down payment. It's a rational mortgage market. Along comes Freddie and Fannie, and they quit doing home mortgages and they started buying. Freddie and Fannie bonds, which were much lower risk by the uh, standards, and maybe they are lower risk since the government has an implicit guarantee of whether that's good for the economy, uh, you, can, you can debate all that. Um, so I just think they're very different kinds of businesses than banks, um, and they have different risk profile. It, you can argue it's the liquidity. I don't think it's all the liquidity. They have a lot higher capital. I'm going to take uh, one more question from the audience, and then I'm going to ask the panel the last question. So uh, up here on the, on, in the middle. This is a question from Mr. Grant and Per Kurovsky. Uh, you su suggest that we should tell what we want as citizens, as borrowers, as investors. Uh, and sometimes we don't know. But should we at least not request the regulators to tell what they think is the purpose, for instance, of the banks? In the whole literature of the Basel regulations, thousands of pages, there is not one single sentence that describes what's the purpose of banks. And I just remember John August Shedd's uh, saying of that ships are safe in harbors, but that's not what ships are for. Yeah. The president of one of the big Scandinavian banks was quoted a while ago, apropos of that uh, 
that very good observation of yours on ships. He said that the purpose of banks can't just be not to go bankrupt. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 um, I'm so interested in, in hearing John Allison, the practitioner, talking about what it was like to run a bank in this environment of, of smothering regulation. Um, you know, uh, uh, there's an eminent uh, British monetary economist named uh, Charles Goodhart. And... Um, and uh, Professor Goodhart wrote a book, a kind of an obscure book. I bet it was his PhD dissertation. It was called something like uh, 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 the uh, Banking and the, and the Finance of Trade in New York, 1900-1913. It was, it was a survey of the financial environment preceding, in the decade or so preceding the, uh, the coming of the Federal Reserve. And, uh, and what he found was that uh, uh, he, he, he judged that those 13 years or so were the, were the most prosperous and constructive era in the history of New York banking. This book came out in the 60s, I guess, 1960s. And one of the reasons for the success, and this is notwithstanding the panic of 1907 that, that Mr. Honig alluded to earlier, he said that one of the reasons for the success of the banks in that area, obviously there was no federal deposit insurance, there was the uh, the, the rule that the stockholders got uh, a liability, got, got a capital call in the event of uh, an insolvency or other trouble. So the reason for, a reason for the success was the, the very uncertainty about short-term money rates. Uh, being unable to predict uh, where call rates were, they were traded in the New York Stock Exchange, there was a call money post in the stock exchange, no Fed funds market, of course, and it was very volatile. It was seasonally... Uh, uh, somewhat predictable, but within those predictable bounds, extremely volatile. And because you couldn't tee off on somebody's forward guidance, uh, you had to stay loose and liquid. And because the owners were responsible for the solvency of the business, you had to remain well capitalized. Now, to reiterate, there ain't no paradise in the history of monetary affairs or financial affairs, but this regime in which capitalism prevailed in banking seemed like a pretty good system. And it was succeeded by a system that we, perhaps some of us can agree, has, has uh, demonstrated increasingly its flaws. Uh, but uh, no, ships ought not to remain in harbor, merely to remain unsunk. Okay, last question. I'm gonna ask John. Um, you know, we're in a changing political regime. The House Financial Services Committee definitely wants to change Dodd-Frank. Um, what would be the one or two things you would get rid of immediately? I'd like to ask Jim how he might alter the Federal Reserve Act, and I'd like to ask Mark how, what legislative changes he would think of to make markets function better and, and maybe more equitably. Um, in regards to Dodd-Frank, I'm actually fairly optimistic. Uh, I mentioned this a little bit, but we, Cato, along with other people, have been working with uh, Jeff Hen Henserling now for uh, years on a bill that's not the bill we would like, but it's a heck of an improvement. And basically, the key to the bill is that if a bank keeps a leverage capital ratio of 10% or more, it can opt out of Dodd-Frank. I think that would be a huge deal. I think healthy banks would opt out. It'd have to take them a few years probably to get, in some cases, to get those ratios. Large, high-risk banks would uh, reduce the size of their, of their, of their businesses, I, I, I believe, pretty, pretty significantly. Um, 
you know, it, it has passed the House Financial Services Committee. It might pass the House. I think it will pass the House. What will happen in the Senate, I don't know. What's the name of that bill again? Oh, gosh. Choice Ag. It's okay, got right. a longer name. But, right. yep. but that's a big improvement. It's not what I would like, but it's a big improvement given the realities. Uh, Jim? How would you, what would you change in the Federal Reserve Act? Well, a, a lot, but I. But let me say, I, 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 I think anyone here would uh, uh, change a great deal. Perhaps one could start with, uh, I'm not sure if this is part of the Federal Reserve Act or whether it's separate legislation, but this Humphrey Hawkins business, I think, would be a nice thing to abolish. But I, I, um, uh, to come back to the theme of my talk, I think uh, uh, that's important not to take a poison chalice. I mean, as Mark uh, pointed out so persuasively, and as I, I certainly believe uh, that, you know, if you were now to take uh, ownership of the financial system, say by dis announcing that you now were um, the power and that you were in the process of reorganizing things and you laid out the program and then things fell apart, you would have blackguarded uh, the hope of reform for some time to come. I mean, substantive market-based capitalist-like reform of finance and money. And I, I think that no such opportunity is going to come until there is a proper comeuppance in, uh, in the financial markets. And then people will pay attention. They, I think they'll be, they'll be alive to, uh, to uh, a description of the preceding problems, and they will be alert to potential seemingly radical changes, but actually quite constructive and conservative changes. Mark, uh, any sort of financial market reform you could think of? Well, you know, I, I think liquidity needs to be unconstrained, but, you know, everything is sort of a marginal thing from my standpoint, other than not having free-floating interest rates. I mean, this is a much bigger reform. It, it's a, a legislative reform, but, you know, we are, we are, the, the, the financial community is extraordinarily impatient, you know, we're hyperbolic discounters, um, and uh, keeping our rates artificial low has, 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 in many ways, created this whole business around needing to, needing to eke out these little extra returns from high-frequency trading to, to all you know, the other things that are, are creating certainly more uh, a, a more a, a less a less reliable liquidity uh, in the market. So it all comes down to that, in my view. So thank you, panelists. Um, we're going to take a break now. I'm told to tell you that uh, there'll be caffeine in the Winter Garden, and that restrooms are located on this level to the left of the elevators and on the lower level as well. Thanks very much. Good. 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 Good.